This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Maternal Fetal Decision-Making, Ethical Issues in Pregnancy by Dr. Christy L. Cummings. Hello, my name is Dr. Christy Cummings, and I'm a neonatologist and ethicist with Boston Children's Hospital, and today I'll be speaking about maternal fetal conflict. I have no conflicts of interest or disclosures, and the material presented today will be as evidence-based uh, and bias-free as possible and appropriately referenced. Today, the learning objectives will be as follows. We'll aim to distinguish between maternal fetal conflict and maternal fetal relationship within the context of the fetus as patient with the shared goal of optimizing health for both the pregnant woman and the fetus. We'll demonstrate the application of various ethical frameworks to approach maternal fetal conflicts while recognizing the limitations and strengths of each. We'll recognize the limitations of the best interest analysis as applied to the fetus, including gender and racial bias, We'll also describe the importance of autonomy and respect for persons and the right to informed refusal of treatment, specifically with respect to the pregnant woman in the setting of maternal fetal conflict. Finally, we'll identify appropriate strategies to resolve conflicts while preserving the therapeutic physician-patient relationship in the setting of maternal fetal conflict. Case study. We'll start off with a case. This is Katie, a 22-year-old G1P0 woman. She has a history of intimate partner violence, substance use, depression, and intermittent homelessness. She's late to prenatal care, with her first obstetric visit being late in her second trimester. She admits to using heroin and Percocet regularly, as well as three to five alcoholic drinks per day and half a pack of cigarettes per day. Her urine test is positive for uh, heroin, opiates, and marijuana. An ultrasound is concerning for restricted fetal growth. Katie is counseled about harmful effects of these toxins on herself as well as the fetus and the newborn. She's offered treatment including counseling and medication or Suboxone, which she declines. She cannot commit to staying clean, but agrees to return for follow-up visits. Subsequently though, she misses two scheduled appointments and shows up eight weeks later. At that time, a urine test is again positive for heroin and opiates. The repeat ultrasound at 35 weeks shows severe persistent intrauterine growth restriction with a concerning fetal tracing, prompting her medical team to recommend induction of labor, which Katie declines. The fetal heart tracing worsens, however, prompting the team to now recommend a cesarean section, which Katie also declines. The neonatologist on service has been asked by the OB to speak with Katie. So questions for today. What is maternal fetal conflict? What are some ethical methods of analysis to approach such conflict? And what ethical or moral obligations does the pregnant woman have to her developing fetus and future child? What ethical and moral obligations does the physician have to the pregnant woman and her fetus? What are the best interests of the pregnant woman and the fetus? And how are these determined? And do these interests align or misalign? Can a pregnant woman refuse recommended treatment even if the fetus will likely be harmed? Should a pregnant woman be punished for refusing treatment that ultimately harms her fetus or future child? And finally, what are some practical approaches to help resolve such conflicts? Maternal-fetal conflict. 
Starting off, pregnancy largely is a joyous event that represents converging maternal and fetal interests. Rarely, however, situations can lead to maternal-fetal conflict, potential fetal harm, posing unique ethical challenges and dilemmas. Maternal-fetal conflict can include a pregnant woman's refusal of recommended induction of labor or cesarean section, a pregnant woman's use of illicit substances or non-prescribed medications, or other risky behaviors, as well as a pregnant woman's non-adherence to prenatal care or recommended treatment for herself or for her fetus's medical condition, such as arrhythmia, for example. Now we'll get into a little bit of definitions and terminology. Maternal-fetal conflict is typically used to describe such ethical challenges and dilemmas for a pregnant woman and her fetus. However, many argue that, that the term maternal-fetal conflict should be avoided and that the term maternal-fetal relationship should be used instead to avoid the negative connotations that conflict may evoke. Others, however, urge the term maternal-physician relationship to be used, saying instead that the conflict is not with the mother and her fetus, but instead the perceived conflict rests usually with the medical team and not with the pregnant woman at all. Fetal interests and fetal patient are other terms that raise controversy. These in general should be avoided as they artificially distinguish the fetus as separate from the pregnant woman, erroneously provide disproportionate weight to the fetus when considering treatment options and alternatives, and finally encroach on the pregnant woman's autonomy. Ethical issues. So now we'll get into some fundamental ethical issues, which include a woman's right to autonomy, the rights of the fetus or future child, the moral obligations of the pregnant woman, and the physician's moral and professional obligations to the pregnant woman as well as the fetus. So how to best approach these challenging issues? What are some ethical frameworks and strategies? We'll list a few here, and you should know that these are not all inclusive, but some of the most well-known and used. First, the principle-based ethics. You've probably heard of these. These are the four principles championed by Beecham and Childress in their text, Principles of Biomedical Ethics. The first being respect for autonomy, second is beneficence, third is non-maleficence, and fourth is justice. These four principles are crucial for any ethical analysis. However, they are not alone in and of themselves sufficient. Other ethical approaches can be used synergistically to enhance the analysis. These can be feminist ethics. Feminist ethics address the care of groups that have traditionally experienced oppression, domination, and bias, such as towards women, minorities, and children. Feminist ethics allows for consideration of a broader notion of autonomy. This includes relationships and contexts in which women live, the difficulty they often have in accessing treatment services, and their endurance of systematic oppressions related to ethnicity, socioeconomics, and politics. Another framework is virtue ethics. Virtue ethics emphasizes decision-making based on certain qualities or characteristics thought to be essential to a good person or a good doctor. This includes truthfulness, fairness, integrity, temperance, compassion, and fortitude. Virtue ethics asks, what would a virtuous person do? Or what would a virtuous physician do? This action appropriately follows from what is an admittedly circular approach. Another approach is called ethics of care or care-based ethics. And this focuses on the elements of decision-making that some feel have been historically neglected in medicine, such as compassion, care, love, and empathy. Narrative ethics. 
This framework focuses on understanding the patient's or family's unique personal story or narrative to form the basis for ethical reflection and decision-making. It attempts to ground the abstract principles and theories into context and emphasizes individual and family context and voice. Now, returning to our fundamental ethical issues involved in maternal-fetal conflict. The first, respect for autonomy. Respect for autonomy forms the basis for informed consent. Fully informed, competent adults are accorded the right to make medical decisions, including the right to refuse an unwanted therapy, even if that results in serious harm or death. Justice Cardozo affirmed in 1914 in this famous Schillendorf case, a pregnant woman with decisional capacity cannot be forced to undergo any medical or surgical therapy, even if this means that harm to her or her fetus could result. Justice. How does the concept of justice apply in this case? The principle of justice states that equal persons should be treated equally. Pregnant women should be treated the same as men and non-pregnant women. A woman's right to refuse invasive medical treatment is not diminished during pregnancy. The potential impact on a fetus is not legally relevant, morally perhaps, but not legally so. A mother or any other competent person does not have an obligation or responsibility to provide medically for a fetus or for another person for that matter, such as a parent or a child or a sibling. Now let's get into best interests. The best interests of the, parent, of the pregnant woman generally include life and optimal health, as is the same for the infant. In the face of illness, careful benefit and burden analysis must take place that looks at the quality of life, which may perhaps outweigh quantity of life depending on the prognosis, harm of the proposed therapy, and individual values or judgments. Now what about the fetal interests and the moral status of the fetus? As mentioned before, many argue that increasingly common terms such as fetal interests and fetal patients should be avoided, as these artificially distinguish the fetus as separate from the pregnant woman, erroneously give disproportionate weight to the fetus when considering treatment options and alternatives, and finally encroach on the pregnant woman's autonomy. That said, generally, the best interests of the pregnant woman and her fetus align, where optimal health is desired for both. Rarely, however, situations occur, such as this case, when maternal-fetal conflict arises. Some may perceive, however, the conflict not as between the pregnant woman and the fetus, but between the pregnant woman and the medical team. A pregnant woman may, may not view the health of her fetus as a priority, perhaps in the context of an unplanned pregnancy or major maternal medical or social complications. Finally, the moral status of the fetus. Although the moral status of the fetus is controversial, it is commonly held that the pregnant woman's right to autonomy trumps the fetus's right to beneficence. After delivery, however, the situation changes and the medical team caring for the infant then has an obligation to provide treatment for that in infant as indicated. Many would argue that a pregnant woman has a moral obligation to protect and promote the health of her developing fetus, beneficence, who will eventually become her future child. This obligation may include optimizing maternal, mental, and physical health, for instance, by ensuring adequate nutrition, exercise, and rest, and conversely, by avoiding potentially harmful substances such as alcohol or illicit drugs, which is non-maleficence. Fulfillment of these obligations assume, however, desired pregnancy, and on a practical level, adequate medical access and social support, which we know is not always the case. Ideally, such crucial information will be sensitively elicited during subsequent conversations. Although the pregnant woman may have moral obligations to benefit her fetus, there is no legal obligation to do so. In this case, delicate questioning reveals that this pregnancy was the result of sexual assault, and all this pregnancy was unintended, Katie wants to have a healthy baby, but feels stigmatized and lacks family and financial support. 
Further probing also reveals that she lacks mental health treatment. The physician's moral and professional obligations are to the pregnant woman and to her fetus. The physicians and the medical team in this case have ethical and moral obligations to the pregnant woman, including obligation to respect her as a person, which is autonomy, and to provide sound medical advice and therapy, beneficence, to avoid harm, non-maleficence, and to treat her equally, justice. The medical team also has an obligation to optimize the health of the fetus and future child, although not to the detriment of the pregnant woman, and certainly not without her consent. The only way to treat a fetus is through the willing pregnant woman. Controversies. So now we reviewed some fundamental ethical issues. What if controversy still persists? If a pregnant woman reaches a decision that is clearly opposed to her or her fetus's best interest with significant consequences, the medical team should engage in further conversation, time permitting, to better understand her rationale, her perspectives, her priorities, her narrative. Taking the time to ask the pregnant woman such question and listening to her story in the context of her life, perhaps over the course of several encounters if time allows, may be extremely beneficial. And this can insist in reaching a mutually agreed upon decision. If this woman persists, however, in her decision, which the medical team feels is contrary to her or her fetus's best interests, the medical team should honor that decision ensure that she truly is informed of all her options and the possible consequences, and clearly document this in the medical record. The question then arises is should a pregnant woman ever be harmed for any potential or real injury to herself, her fetus, or her future child? This should never occur. Punitive measures such as threats of criminal action, loss of custody, mandatory rehabilitation, or incarceration have all been shown to have a negative impact they can erode trust, endanger the physician-patient relationship, create an adversarial relationship between the physician and the woman, and potentially conflict with a the therapeutic obligation. Incarcerating pregnant women where illicit drugs may be available, but medical and psychiatric treatment usually are not, endangers not only the health of pregnant women, but also their existing and future children. Punishment deters women from seeking medical care in the future as well, is ineffective in reducing the incidence of alcohol or drug abuse, and removing children from the home may only subject them to potentially worse risks in the foster care system. Research has shown actually that continued supportive medical treatment has more effective and less expensive than restrictive punitive policies. Studies have shown that women who have custody of their children complete treatment at a higher rate than those who do not. One study demonstrated a mean net savings of over $4,000 in medical expenses per mother-infant dyad which su with support of policies and care. Referrals to Children's Protective Services should never be done as punishment, but only if abuse or neglect is suspected to initiate the evaluation, protect the child and provide services if needed in order to preserve the family or allow for future reunification if possible. Legal Cases it's important that as professionals we remain humble and have humility towards uncertainty regarding prognosis. Some court-ordered interventions, such as cesarean section, were in fact upon retrospective examination unnecessary. It's important that we have individual sensitivity and respect for those preferences, values, and perspectives that are unique to each patient and their families. Our ultimate goals are to promote the health for both the pregnant women and her fetus and infant, and to foster a healthy physician-patient relationship. Now we'll discuss some relevant legal precedents with respect to maternal-fetal conflict. 
It's important to remember that court decisions, policy, and legislation, while important, do not replace ethical analysis. It is helpful to be knowledgeable of pertinent legal cases, as these rulings have significant implications for patient care and decision-making. The following selected court cases have supported a woman's right to autonomy, informed consent, and informed declination of treatment. The first, which we reviewed before, is the Schloendorf case in 1914, where Mary Schloendorf, the plaintiff, gave consent to an exam under anesthesia by a surgeon to determine if a uterine fibroid was in fact malignant or not, but did not give consent to have that tumor removed. The surgeon, however, removed the tumor after discovering he felt it was malignant, and she sued. Justice Cardozo upheld respect for autonomy when he affirmed the right of an adult with decisional capacity to accept or refuse any offered medical treatment. Every human being of adult years and sound mind has the right to determine what shall be done with his or her body. A surgeon who performs an operation without his or her patient's consent commits an assault for which he or she is liable in damages. Another case, the case of AC. This case is important. This is a court hearing obtained by a hospital administration who ordered immediate cesarean section for Angela Carter, who at 25 weeks gestation was with a terminal recurrence of metastatic cancer and had already clearly refused a cesarean section. Following the C-section, however, against her refusal, the infant died only several hours later and Angela herself died two days later. This decision was later appealed and overturned as the court order had violated Carter's right to informed consent and her constitutional rights of privacy and bodily integrity. Another important case is Baby Boy Doe versus Mother Doe. In this case, in 1994, the Illinois Court of Appeals declined the request for a court-ordered C-section for a pregnant woman at 36 weeks gestation with placental insufficiency over the pregnant woman's refusal for the section due to re religious beliefs. The court cited AC in 1990 and stated that a woman's right to refuse invasive medical treatment is not diminished during pregnancy and the potential impact on a fetus is not legally relevant. Quote, a mother or any other competent person does not have an obligation or responsibility to provide medically for a fetus or for another person that, for that matter. Recently, however, several court cases have challenged established precedents of a pregnant woman's right to informed refusal of a treatment and autonomy. We'll go over a few of these. Some court-ordered interventions, as we've discussed, such as C-section, were in fact upon retrospective examination unnecessary. One of the first ones in 2004, this was Baby Doe versus Jane and John Doe in 2004, a Pennsylvania court sought and gained custody of a macrosomic fetus to perform a C-section over the pregnant woman's refusal, as she argued that she'd already successfully delivered six babies vaginally. Ultimately, the woman left the hospital against medical advice and delivered a healthy 11-pound baby vaginally at another hospital. The Rowland case of 2004. In this case, a 28-year-old woman with a history of psychiatric illness was charged with murder after she refused a C-section and delivered twins, one a stillborn and the other who tested positive for cocaine. She ultimately pled guilty to the two charges against her of child endangerment. And then finally, in 2013, Beltran versus Wisconsin. In this case, the woman, Alicia Beltran, was a 28-year-old pregnant woman in Wisconsin, and she was arrested and taken to jail against her will for admitting to prior substance use in the past while at a routine prenatal visit, and then refused to take an anti-addiction medication, Suboxone, saying that she was no longer using or addicted to substances. 
Several advocacy groups sought petition to challenge the 97 Wisconsin law that deprives pregnant women of their constitutional rights and permits state action that is dangerous to maternal, fetal, and child health. So now we've reviewed several frameworks um, when approaching maternal-fetal conflict. We've also reviewed several pertinent court cases. Other practical approaches are to preserve that therapeutic relationship, maintain trust, provide optimal care, allow adequate time for conversation, and aid in the realignment of mutual goals and interests. It's really important to recognize physician medical limitations and be humble in our uncertainties and those predictions which may not always be true. It's important to offer the opportunity for second opinion and to seek ethics consultations with difficult challenging cases involving maternal fetal conflict. Summary. Returning to our case now, careful thoughtful conversations with Katie revealed that this pregnancy was the result of sexual assault as we discussed previously. And although this pregnancy was unintended, Katie wants to have a healthy baby, but feels stigmatized and lacks family and financial support. Katie wanted to begin a detoxification program once she learned that she was pregnant but had no insurance or health care and couldn't find a program locally to accept her. There was also a history of scattered health care in her past due to unemployment and a lack of insurance, causing Katie's frustration and a lack of trust in the medical system. You will learn after several conversations that she feels judged by the medical team. Katie fears being punished as well or even imprisoned for continuing to use illicit substances during her pregnancy. And you also learn that Katie declines the induction and later the cesarean section that was recommended by her team because she fears a natural intrusion on her body after being sexually assaulted many times and doesn't actually think that these measures would help her baby, who up until now has been growing and developing just fine in her view. Once these issues with Katie are ad adequately addressed and she regains trust with the medical team, she might reconsider her decision. In conclusion, the American College of Gynecology recommends that physicians and policymakers promote the health of women and their fetuses through advocacy of healthy behavior and support for pregnant women, through appropriate referral for substance abuse treatment and mental health services, and through the development of safe, available, and efficacious services for women and their families. A pregnant woman's right to autonomy ought to be respected and held absolute including the right to refuse recommended treatment, even if this means a risk of harm to herself or to her fetus. Efforts should be made to enhance communication through a positive physician-patient relationship to help achieve mutual understanding and realignment of goals if possible. Punitive measures should be avoided, as these have been shown to be detrimental to the physician-patient relationship, the care of the pregnant woman, and ultimately her future child as well. Thank you so much for watching this video on maternal-fetal conflict and ethical analysis. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.